Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this still amazing program known as The Takeout. Working from home like many of us are. Those of you who are not working from home, frontline workers, be they hospital medical workers, grocery stores, first responders, Thank you for what you're doing. Be well, be safe. And for those of you who are enjoying the program, thanks for catching up with us. Great to be back on CBSN for the second week in a row. That's encouraging for all of us. A little bit of new normal. At least it feels that way. At least getting back on CBSN. A small part of the new normal, but we'll take it wherever we can find it. Uh, The conversation this week is going to be about small businesses, in particular the restaurant industry, As you know, this show is built and always has been built around the restaurant experience because it's always been my belief that conversations built around a meal are, by definition, more interesting. They're more relaxed. They're more closer to what conversations are normally like. And in a city like Washington, where a lot of conversations aren't normal, let's just say, restaurants help bring it a little bit closer to that normal place we're all most comfortable with. So we're going to talk to somebody who is right in the middle of adjusting to the COVID-19 realities foisted upon the restaurant business. He's a guy that if you Google, you'll find he is involved also in politics at some level. His name is Ray Washburn. So let's just clear a few things up right off the beginning. He supported Governor Chris Christie in the 2016 campaign. Then he became a part of the finance team for then-candidate and then-eventual nominee and President of the United States, Donald Trump. He was for a time the leader of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. He now serves uh, as a member of the president's task force on reopening the economy. That's not its formal title, but you know what I'm getting at. And uh, he also is uh, part of the president's uh, intelligence advisory panel, that is to say President Trump. But Ray Washburn is not here as a pro-Trump partisan. He's here as a voice of American small business or middle-sized business dealing with COVID-19 in all of its complexities. So, Ray, it's good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Good. Thank you, Major. I'm happy to share a few of our real frontline experiences with you today. So let's start right off the top. How many people, what is it, what, what is your restaurant? Is it a chain? How many restaurants and how many employees? Well, I'm actually involved in over 60 different concepts and, and types, but the main one is called Mikasina. It's a I started it 29 years ago with my brother and my best friend, and 
We have 25 units. It's a high-end Mexican food restaurant in Dallas. And we employ, as of about six weeks ago, 2,200 people. How many do you employ today? Full-time, we still have about 590 on the payroll. We furloughed and approximately 1,800 people. Wow. All right. And how rapidly did you have to engage in that furlough process after the stay-at-home orders and the restrictions on restaurants went into place? That's a great question. It's a very surreal time for us because we you could hear the drumbeat of something coming along that, that the governor or someone was going to close us down, but no one really thought that was going to happen. And on a Monday, we got a call that all restaurants had to shut down. And so literally we closed. The way pay cycles work is we kept everybody on the payroll for another five or six days to run through that pay cycle. And it looked like we were going to be opening up anytime soon. We then quickly had to adjust to becoming a delivery and pickup restaurant. And that's why we kept 590 people on and the rest had to be furloughed. And how have you found that flow of business, the delivery and pickup? Well, that's been an interesting experience for us. Typically, our sales run about 10 to 15% takeout. Um, since that time, it's grown now, equivalent to previous sales, to about 40 or 50%, some restaurants up to 60%. So people are out eating. The problem is, you know, we're still running a full... I'm still, I've got a full kitchen staff and all to, to produce that. So it's not like it's a profit making venture. We primarily did it just to keep people employed. And the more business we were able to take on, we were able to hire back more. So I think since the original furlough, we've brought back on about 150 people. Right. And was it also strategic from a marketing and visibility point of view, Ray, just to keep your name and your product out there? Yeah. And, you know, we had kitchens. We did have a decent pickup business. We've now, the 25 restaurants, Five of them don't do takeout. We just brought three more of those online uh, this week. And so I only have two now that don't, don't do the uh, pickup. So people have been very responsive to, to the restaurants and picking up. The problem is, once again, you're running a full-size operation. And takeout sounds like, oh, you're making a lot of money because someone's not eating your restaurant. We have an incredible cost in packaging and bags and the containers and the forks you give them and all those things. So actually it's a more expensive cost to us on a takeout than it is for someone to eat in the restaurant. The only savings is in the labor side of the equation. Right. A couple of practical questions. Did you change your menu for takeout? And did you find, do you find new challenges in quality control? Uh, we shrunk our menu 70%. We just really cut it down to the ones that were easy easier to prepare. There, there are a lot of items most restaurants have on the menu you sell very few of during the day. So we cut it down to our most popular items. As far as the quality of our supply chain to supply, not, not at all. We are seeing pricing relief in things like avocados and chicken and things like that. We don't use any pork at all other than bacon. And so I know the pork producer Smithfield was having problems, but that, that hasn't been an issue for us. Right. And in terms of uh, your customers picking it up and enjoying it when, by the time they get home, there's no problems there. No, it's a, you know, if someone comes and picks it up to your restaurant, they're pretty much home quickly. The to-go, the Uber Eats of the world and things like that, 
that's a little more problematic because sometimes it's a little bit longer to get the delivery to someone's home. But we, the items we prepared, we try to do the ones that travel well and don't get cold too quick. And do you have any uh, expectation, Ray, that in Texas you're going to be allowed to open anytime soon? No, I, I just was given a slip before we came on that the governor or the county has just issued a May 31st stay-at-home issue, which I haven't been able to look into. I mean, it literally was in the last couple of minutes. Our plan was, we were thinking it was going to be a mid-May, but now it looks like it's going to be, you know, in the June sometime. And your initial reaction to that, since you're getting that news as we're discussing this? I'm kind of shocked. I mean, we, uh, you know, you care. I, look, look, Major, it, it's, I don't want to get in some political football in this whole thing, but for us, our customer base and people out, I mean, I just, that's more of a political question. What I'll say is we're very disappointed. We're not open. We think we should be open. And the other thing is on the social distancing, which is I don't see practically the people making policy on this obviously haven't been in the business. I've got one restaurant. It's a big outdoor venue called the Katie Trail Ice House, and we seat a thousand people outside and usually have a pretty long line of people to get in. Well, social distancing means every other seat. So you could say, oh, now you can still see 500 people. Well, how about the people waiting in line? We tell them they have to wait six feet apart to get in. And then once they get in, they're at a table and then they need to go to the bathroom and they got to pass all the other tables to get to the bathroom. And then I have to have a full kitchen to only service half of a restaurant. I mean, how, how is that supposed to work? The economics just don't work. It's either, my belief, it's either we're all in or we're not because a half one restaurant is just a money loser. That's a fantastic thought, Ray, not only not in the sense that it's fantastic in its reality, but it begins to unpack some of the complexities of your life and every other restaurateur's life across this country. And the president has given voice to that on a couple of occasions, saying when we reopen, we're not going to have half and half restaurants. You're going to be able to go back full freight. We're going to talk about that and other practical dimensions of COVID-19 in the restaurant industry with our guest Ray Washburn. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two coming up in just a second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Ray Washburn is our special guest. Yes, you can look him up and find out that he has been involved in politics, but this isn't a conversation about politics. It's a conversation about the practical life of a restaurateur living in the reality of COVID-19. And Ray, when we were ending up segment one, you were going through some of the practical difficulties of reopening a restaurant with social distancing. And you ticked off a couple. I'm sure there are more but let's just start with that. Do you want to try to open up a restaurant or can you imagine opening up any one of your 25 restaurants when 
you can have one table here and one table here and but you have to have all this vacant space and working around that is that even something practically in your mind you can work around it's just there's no it's just not practical if you go to a restaurant and you see some friends of yours three tables over you haven't seen in a couple months because you've been inside you which is exactly your- which is exactly the scenario every single person would be in yes <laughs> i've seen you and say hello and they're like you got to stand away and who's going to police this matter and then if you go to a bar and you're by yourself and you sit is it every other bar stool that's occupied and what about the bartender serving you is he wearing a face mask because he's looking right across from you i mean there's so many practical aspects and look at look at the kitchen the kitchen people are packed in pretty tight you know the bus the guy that busses the table you know he's going to hit five or six different tables well there's no social distancing with that guy and so it's just it just practically doesn't work and i do want to get to talking about my employees and our landlords as well but i will say from the employee standpoint we had to furlough 1800 people well today someone asked me earlier the that was three weeks ago. They said, well, where are your employees now? I said, well, the construction industry in Dallas hasn't stopped. They are now sheet rockers, they're bricklayers, they're pouring concrete. They have been absorbed in other parts of our economy. And also with unemployment now paying people $24 an hour, I was paying a dishwasher 15 bucks an hour, okay? They make a lot more money being on unemployment than they do coming back working for me. So I'm now competing with the government unemployment to get back my basic backbone job. So even if I wanted to reopen of any sense, where am I going to get my employees from? The government soaked them all up with unemployment. Wow, that's something I hadn't even thought of. The siphoning away of your employees, either to construction or to unemployment benefits. Uh, Let's take them in order. So based on your own assessment, some employees of yours have already shifted to another job. You believe that, you know that. Oh, I know that. And you know, we'll wait till the summer comes, it gets 110 degrees outside (laughs) if they want to come back. But it's, you know, people slowly, they'll find other places to go. I I haven't lost anyone to any competitor of mine in the restaurant business, but they'll go to another city because they hear somewhere, they go into landscaping or, or something else. But it is, it's very hard to put the longer this goes, the further and further people drift away. And we try to keep up, you know, our senior management, as far as the managers and our chefs and things like that are there. But the people that bust the table, wash the dishes, sweep the floors, your basic backbone of any restaurant business, they're disappearing. And anyone who's been in the restaurant business, uh, and as I've mentioned on a couple of occasions, my very first job for pay was as a dishwasher. The one thing that I love about the restaurant industry, and it's one thing that any restaurateur knows in his or her bones, there are no hierarchies in restaurants. The owner can't exist without a dishwasher and a busboy. Just can't. You can't open, you can't run your restaurant that day. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much payroll you have, no matter how much money you've got in your back pocket, if you don't have a good dishwasher and a good busboy, you're in trouble. And if you have a terrible hostess, you're also in trouble. Everyone in the chain matters. Everyone in that loop of labor from beginning to end matters. And the hierarchies don't really exist. And these employees you're talking about are central to your ability to reopen. Are they not? That's correct. And again, when you're dealing with the government, given unemployment, which I understand doing it, but once we start hiring people back, they've got to stop those programs that pay in those kind of salaries because 
there is no incentive to go back to work. You disincentivize people because you're getting paid so much more than they would, you know, in a you know, in the normal sense. Right. And to what degree, Ray, have you heard from your employees? Um, are they some have obviously drifted to other jobs, but some are, I imagine, loyal to you and wonder what their future is. How you you said you you've kept some on the payroll. Have you used or re- reached out for the Paycheck Protection Program funds? And if so, have you received it? And has that become a lifeline for some of your other employees? Uh, yes, we have. We, we got some funding last Friday, and we're going to start hiring back people right away. Now, I, I want you to understand how this PPP deal exactly works, okay? You get 75% needs to go for salaries, which, you know, we can hire back as many, but... 25% can be used for other things. It can be used for rent. It can be used for other expenses. But people seem to forget this This happened in March. Things like sales tax to your local jurisdictions for February are due in March. Well, most people didn't pay their February because they didn't have the money. And so in our case, we had a huge sales tax bill, which we needed to pay. That was our first payment out. And so a lot of this money that people think is going to be out there for the next two or three months is getting chewed up by past issues that you might've had. And as well as landlords are coming to you saying, and we're finding most landlords and this is kind of the basic formula landlords are doing. They're saying pay us 50% rent for April, May, and June, pay all of March, but April, May, and June, the other 50% we're going to tack on to your lease payment in 2021. So they're not abating it. It's just deferring it. Well, that's fine. And we can live along with that. But I think this real bomb hits in June when the payroll money runs out for these people. And we go to employees and say, I want to hire you back. And they're like, well, you were paying me 15 an hour and I get 24 for unemployment. Why do I go back to you? And then I'm stuck with this money that was supposed to be used to employ people back. So you get to June, your rent money's run out. You paid your sales tax, your vendors all run on 30 day terms. You're like, okay, the vendors for March are getting paid for February. You follow me? And so it's get, getting to be this daisy chain of like, okay, when's the music stop? We got to have sales. We got to get reopened. And landlords are getting their mortgage, you know, people they have their mortgages with knocking on their door saying, where's our rent? They're doing the exact same thing. We'll defer 50% you know, till next year, you pay it. Well, that's fine as long as you got some money going, but this government stimulus, it's going to blow through the system in 60 days and it's, it's going to be game up. And let me tell you the last thing that's going to become a big concern in the fourth quarter is inflation because things are getting shut down, whether it's your avocado producer, your tequila supplier, since demand is shutting down. So let's say everyone's doing 50% of the sales they were doing before capacity in the supply chain is getting shut down. If things start ramping back up this fall, we're going to start calling up and saying, okay, now I need hundred percent of my goods now. And they're like, well, we shut capacity down. There's a lot more competition. And with all this money jacked into the money supply and such a lack of thing, you're, I think you're, we're going to look, there's a chance we're going to get hit with some rampant inflation in the fourth quarter. Wow. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, Ray. But let's just yeah. talk about June. Let's just say, for example, to take all the daisy chain things you mentioned in order. So June comes along. 
You've got your payroll protection program money, but it's beginning to wind down. You have real live bills. You're opening up, but you're not sure how many customers you have and how readily they're going to be willing to come back in to your space or any space. The bills haven't gone away. They might be deferred, but you have to plan your budget and your overall approach to day-to-day business with, I would imagine, five or six variables you've never had to try to calculate before. Correct. So, so what, what is the answer to that? Uh, it's opening us back up and getting business going again. But if we're closed, like I said earlier, that I just heard Dallas County is doing until May 31st, my PPP money's gone because it's really was only for eight weeks. So I'm, I'm going in the first week of June with like, okay, I don't really have any sales. My vendors are hopefully caught up to the PPP a little bit, at least on the edge. But then what's the next step? Do I have to then furlough 1,800 people again? Well, if employees see that, why will they come back to work for you if they can stay on unemployment and make almost twice as much? We're going to pick up that line of conversation on the other side of this break. That's Ray Washburn. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just a moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. This show is focused on the topic of real-world live coping under COVID-19 for one restaurateur in America. His name is Ray Washburn. Yes, he's been involved in politics. We've gone over that. But he's not here in a political context. This is the real stuff that he and I would dare say thousands, if not tens of thousands of small business and restaurateurs around the country are trying to figure out. And this is not about assigning blame. It's just what are the practical realities of trying to sustain a business, reopen a business that is in the hospitality realm, that is deeply personal, that is about social gathering and interacting in a time of uncertainty around COVID-19. And Ray, we talked about a lot of issues, financial and otherwise, in segment two, but there's a larger context to this. The hospitality industry in general, it's not just restaurants, it's hotels, it's the whole scheme. And all of that, it seems to me, is under tremendous frontline stress in terms of how do you reopen? Are people going to be comfortable going back in those spaces? And how do you attract employees, keep them, and maintain any sense of order in your business? Well, I'm a small investor in some hotels. And I'll tell you from the hotel side of this equation, hotel occupancy nationally right now is running about 5%. So if you're a hotel and you got PPP money, let's say, and you just run, let's say a Marriott courtyard on the side of any freeway in the United States, you still got to mow the grass, still got to clean the pool. You still have to have a base staff on there. The restaurant business, my to-go business, I could get maybe 50% of my employees back because I can ramp that up. But you're not going to get a hotel where you can do takeout. And so the hotel business is heading for even bigger minefield than we are in the restaurant business because when do people start traveling again? When they do, they got to begin to staff up. In the meantime, they've got fixed costs that they're going to blow through the PPP money because 75% has to be for employees. Well, if you have a hotel running 5% occupancy and you once had 100 employees, you're not running that hotel with five employees. You're not going to get up to that 75% threshold. So the rest of that money just becomes a loan from the government. 
what happens? You got to pay it back at some point where you're just loading debt on debt. And so to them, that, that's a cycle that I just don't know how you get out of. Was the PPP program, again, paycheck protection administered by the Small Business Administration through lending authority provided by the Treasury Department? Was it misdesigned or improperly put together? Well, I'd say in the case of the restaurants, I think it, I, I'll speak from that experience, the, the employing back 75% of our people, that is a practical goal if we can get our restaurants open. If we're closed till June or July, I mean, you're not going to hire people back. There's nothing to do. It's just throwing money out the window. you got to have something to do. But as long as in a, by June 1st we're open, yes, I think it was a very well-designed program. If I'm the hotel business, I don't know how long it is, even if they switch the lights on the day and just said, everyone go back to the new, you know, the way it was. It's going to take so long to get travel back. We're about to hit the summer season. Most people have probably already canceled their summer vacations and camp for their kids. Well, those hotels, how do they dig their way out of that hole? I think it's going to have to be rethought by, by different industries. Right. When we had Craig Fugate on this program a couple of weeks ago, former FEMA director during the Obama administration, I asked him, what does the summer look like? He says it's one long staycation for everybody. And if that's true, to your point, uh, restaurants suffer, but the hotel industry and all the properties built around people enjoying for a five days, six days, two weeks of summer vacation, that revenue is gone and not replaceable anytime soon. That, that's right. Well, we're fortunate our restaurants are in, da- in a major city. Um, and so if people have a staycation. I mean, they're going to be eating with us. But if I had a restaurant on the beach somewhere or up in the mountains that depended on tours and business, you're toast. I mean, you've got to make your business in three or four months and it's just not going to be there. So there is this tension and I hear it in your voice, Ray, not in terms of advocacy, but just realities. Is it your perspective that opening and fully reopening is worth the risk? of people maybe socially engaging and getting the virus? You know, I'm not going to go there with that question. All I'll say is if something isn't figured out by mid to late May, this economy, I don't know how it recovers because the government can't continue to throw hundreds of billions of dollars at this. And I was just in downtown Dallas earlier today, just randomly drove by this protest of people protesting getting you know, the country open again. There's going to be, the people that are most hurt by this is the lowest income earner down in the in the poorest part of the city. They're the ones getting hurt most by this. Wealthy people can skate through for a few months, but people live literally paycheck to paycheck. How do they dig out of this? We're going to have some incredible social unrest, civil unrest, if we don't get this thing open again and get people back employed. And as, you, and as you think about reopening, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, does the bartender wear a mask? Are you okay with that as a, as a concept, if that's what's required? No. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't seem practical. It doesn't seem real to you, does it? No, it doesn't. And it doesn't. And I just say just, and again, people going to a restaurant, if they feel like there's going to be a chance they're getting infected, they don't want to go and see somewhere in a face mask. They'll think, hey, there might be a chance I can still get infected. <laughs> So right. Gonna- I mean, I mean, let, let's just be practical about it. That is an enormous buzzkill. You walk in and you and the first person you see is your hostess. She's got an N95 or he's got an N95 mask on. Hi, where can I seat you? Uh, I think I'll go home. <laughs> yeah. Now, now the questions you ask on when should America open back up if people are going to die and those things, I, I, I can't make that judgment call. All I can do is talk about my real life experience and I'm experiencing now and 
if it's like the common flu where a certain amount of people die every year because of it, and it's the same, it's, I don't know. I, I, I know a lot of people that have gotten the flu. I don't know anybody that's gone to the hospital, but a lot of people I know have, you, you know, or asymptomatic or whatever you say. And right. So I'm, I'm sure in the conversations you have with other people in the industry, it's always a topic. It's not as if hygiene and cleanliness are not central to any restaurant's commercial operation and successful commercial operation. You have to have the A outside or you don't get customers, point one. Point two, uh, you all deal with best practices in terms of hygiene. Are there things that you are imagining, Ray, in the new normal on the other side of this? that you'll have to undertake anyway to ensure that your customers feel better protected? Are you going to have more hand sanitizer around? Are you going to position things differently? Are you going to have your employees more regimentally doing things that you might not have done before COVID-19? Are you thinking through that those new ad- adaptations? Yeah, absolutely. R- right before we had to shut down, you know, all the tables were being sanitized after every customer and things. So I think the new normal will be that. And there'll be products produced Right now, we would wipe a table down. You have to wait two or three minutes for the thing to dry with the, you, you know, the sprayer things down. So, I mean, s- some people will come up with some innovative ways to sanitize. But, yes, I, I do think customers will not go to a restaurant if they don't feel like it's been it, – it's a sanitary place to go eat. I mean, we can all think of places we've walked into that look dirty, and you went ahead and ate there anyway, but now I think we'll walk in and see it and turn around and walk right back out. Right. And, that, and that's going to be built into the functionality and the successful functionality of every restaurant, it seems to me. Yeah. So I'll give you another, another example. The valets. You valet your car. Well, the guy that gets in the car and parks it, in the past, you've thought nothing about it. Well, guess what? He's had his hands on 100 different steering wheels that night. I mean, who, who was in that car, you know, five cars ago? And is he spreading germs there? So the valet car parking companies are going to have to start thinking about how... Do their guys wear gloves and change them every time they do a car? Do they wear a face mask in the car? I mean, what's the new normal going to look like? Are people just going to rebel against it and say, I just want to go back to life as we as we had it, and if I have a health risk of that, you know, I'll just deal with that. There's a, hike, there's a hiking trail near my house here in Dallas, and now they've gone to where you can only go on it the first half of the alphabet on Monday, every other day and the other half of the alphabet on the other half of the day because they don't want too many people walking on the trail. People are going to rebel against that. I mean, they're just going to have to take the risk of living life um, with it, is what I think would end up happening. My name is Major Garrett. That's Ray Washburn. Back for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. Hey, everybody, it's Major Garrett. And as we all know, these are uncertain, even anxious times. And here at CBS News, we want to keep you informed on everything related to COVID-19. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. The entire world is shut down. In our new series, Debriefing the Briefing, I'm recapping the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefings with the help of my CBS News colleagues and outside experts. New episodes are available each weeknight. Please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Ray Washburn is our guest. He is a restaurateur in Dallas, 25 restaurants, a great number of employees. 1,800 of them had to be furloughed as a result of shutdown orders related to COVID-19. If you've been with us this long, you know he has been explaining all of the practical 
aspects of trying to live in the current normal, imagined a new, new normal. And as we left the conversation before we went to break, what are acceptable risks and who gets to decide? I'm not asking you to be a uh, philosopher, Ray. I'm not asking you to solve this problem, but I'm asking for your thoughts. What is acceptable risk and who gets to decide? I think people get to decide. We, we're, we're not, we, we don't need to become a police state or nanny state where everything we do. I mean, I saw a guy on TV last night, I think on CBS Evening News, that was getting escorted off the beach. And um, he was surfing in California and two policemen went down there, escorted a guy off the beach surfing. I mean, there's just going to be a revolt over the police state that is starting to occur around all this. And so I don't now people are going to have to be willing to accept a risk. If you want to go walk into a crowded mall or go to a movie theater, that's your choice to make. And if you choose to stay at home, watch Netflix because you feel safer, that's your choice to make. We, the nanny state just in police state just is not going to work. And, um, those are those are kind of buzzwords, nanny state, police state. Uh, do you think that at least so far, Ray, and I know you're talking about this pressure building over time, but do you think initially the reaction was proper or do you think even initially it was an overreaction to the contagiousness of COVID-19 and its potential threat factor? Well, look, this thing hit so fast, no one knew what it was. So I think the first two or three weeks people were accepting of it because we had ventured into the territory the United States hadn't seen since 1918. But if you look back to the Spanish flu, when it ended, people went back to normal life. And it was a 24-month flu problem. I mean, we're, right now we're only into this two or three months. So this might be a longer thing to deal with than we want to deal with. But I think everybody wants to get back to life the way the way it was. And did we have the proper response? I think we have initially. But now it's getting to the point of, you know, people want to get back to life. And uh, you clearly want to get back to life. You want to get back to the life of the the life that your employees had, the life that your restaurant had, the vitality of Dallas itself. Describe for my audience, because I, I have no idea what it looks like. What does Dallas look like? I can tell you, Washington, D.C. is almost ghostly uh, in the sense that uh, day in and day out, streets that are typically teeming with vehicles and people are not. You can look down the closest major street, major thoroughfare to me, M Street, and not see a car in either direction in the middle of the day. What's Dallas like? Uh, our roads are very much the same way. The interesting thing, though, in the, starting about 4, 4.30 in the neighborhood I live in, it's people everywhere out walking, you know, husband and wife walking. Growing up as a kid in the 60s and 70s, we were all riding our bikes everywhere. I didn't realize how I never saw a kid ride a bike. And now all of a sudden there are kids everywhere riding bikes. I mean, everywhere. And it's amazing. Teenagers and kids, because they finally feel like that's a release. I think they're kind of enjoying the kind of aspects of the joy of childhood that a lot of them were locked up playing Xbox their whole lives. And now they want to get out and do something. So it's the same way as I was, I was just on our, the Dallas North toll road, which is a major road to the middle of Dallas. And, the same thing. You, you could lay down the middle of the road and not get hit. Mm -hmm. It was just usually it's bumper to bumper traffic. So um, I think it's playing out the same way all over the country. And we're just seeing families. I mean, we, you know, we talk to people. We ne never see anybody, but everyone is seem to be their families are, are together. Mm -hmm. 
So we had on this program last week, Stephen Moore, someone I think you're familiar with. And, and he said, look, uh, we have to reopen the economy because no amount of government loan programs are going to cover this problem. I've heard you s share similar sentiments. Is that what you also believe? That there's simply not enough money that the government can put its hands on or print and not enough programs it can devise to solve all of the practical real world problems that are radiating at, at great velocity and force from COVID-19. Well, I agree with every, everything you just said, but I believe more that people want to be out and be productive in their lives and not trapped at home more than anything else. If you look at communism, they pretty much printed all the money they wanted to get take care of people's needs. But people want the freedom to make their own decisions to do things and not be told what to do. So I think that's a bigger problem with all this is the unrest that's going to be created when people feel like all their rights have just been taken away from them, just ripped away by, by whom? I mean, under what rights, under what civil discourse, or there's going to be a lot of civil discourse because people aren't wanting to be told to stay and do something that they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. do We're do used you, to the freedoms of this country. Right. So uh, freedom is an important construct uh, in this country. It is suffused in our entire history. Do you have, uh, again, I'm not trying to ask you to be a philosopher or a medical ethicist, Ray, but as you think about your restaurant and you think about everyone in your industry, let's say you have uh, 20 of your best customers and you know them and you've known them over the years and somebody walks in who's infected and your 20 customers, half of them get sick because one person came in and was sick. Are you okay with that? Look, it, there's a risk every day getting in your car and driving down the street and someone's going to hit you and kill you, right? And so going to the restaurant, if you're willing to accept the risk that somebody in there might be infected, that's your choice to make. And I think you just got to accept that as a risk every day and no matter what you do. And does, and so does it's like, the government have an obligation to do whatever it can and to create benchmarks and metrics so you and your customers understand how to evaluate that risk, either through testing or contact tracing or some other mechanism. And where, where in our constitution is the government given that authority? Nowhere, explicitly. I'm asking, what, what do you think about that? No, I, I think the government should do a good job educating people as to what the problems are, what the issues are, what the risks are. And they'll let you make the determination if you want to go out. That's what they do when you drive a car. That's what they do when you get on an airplane. I mean, you're making that final last mile decision on what you want to do but you've been given ample warning or ample information on it, education on it to make that decision. Now, at that point, you should be able to go. If you're in some other countries, they tell you you can't leave your house or you'll get shot, you stay in your house. Well, we're not there yet, Ray, as you well know. No one, no one, no one is uh, issuing stay in your house or be shot orders. Well, how about this surfer by himself surfing and gets arrested and hauled off? I mean, who? Who is he at risk infecting? Right. Well, the I, I, I know a little bit about California. The theory is it's not just going to be one, Ray. If one surfer is allowed to surf, then there'll be 100 out there. And if there's 100 surfers, there'll be 50 beach volleyball players. And if there are 50 beach volleyball players, there'll be 3,000 walking on the boardwalk. And the problem multiplies because people want to do exactly what you're saying. And so for a period of time, they're saying nobody in order to not have this multiplier problem play out. That's the theory. I'm not defending it or prosecuting it. I'm just explaining it. Well, the life you described sounds like the life everybody wants to go back to living, doesn't it? 
Sure. Playing beach volleyball. And, you know, at what time period does that end up coming in? I mean, that, that's the problem is, is we look at the number of people infected. And now, now I get back to the restaurant discussion that this is around. So all I can do in my restaurant is prepare it, clean it, test my employees. That's something for a while I think we should have to do. Test their temperature before they come into work. So when my guest walks in, there's nothing within my restaurant from employees or cleanliness that they should question to that experience. The risk factor is the other customers. That's their determination if they want to take a risk that someone else might have it. Right. That's the voice of Ray Washburn, uh, our special guest for our radio audience. We have to conclude the takeout. For those of you thoroughly enjoying this, either on CBSN or our podcast platform, stay tuned for the takeout outtake especial. For those in the radio audience, thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our guest, Ray Washburn. Yes, he's involved in politics, done some stuff with the Trump administration, no doubt. Uh, you can look it all up. He's not here as a political voice. He's here as a practical voice. A restaurateur, 25 restaurants in Dallas. Again, Ray, uh, tell my audience the name of that restaurant chain of yours. It's called Mikusina. What's that mean? My Kitchen. Oh, that sounds that sounds good. All right, and you and you described it earlier as a high end Mexican restaurant. What what makes it high end? Well, we're, we're not a QSR like a Taco Bell or something like that, it's, and we're higher end than like an on the border or a Chili's. But it's we're not a Del Frisco's or Bruce Chris or something like that. So right. Our our price point is what determines that. Okay, and. As we left, I want to go into this a little bit more uh, because it seemed to me like you were revealing a little bit about what your new normal is going to be whenever that day comes. You'll be testing your employees. Have you thought and have those of your colleagues in the restaurant industry begun to talk about how that looks and how that plays out? How frequent is it? Uh, Is it mandatory, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, yeah. No, we'll make it a mandatory practice for someone. But you you come. I don't know what, what period of time, but at least till this is over. And, you know, just check the temperature. You They have those things you point up their forehead and as they come in and leave you, you only have to do it at the beginning of a shift. And, you know, if they have a temperature, we'll send them home. Right. So, so when you, you, are you doing that now? At some of the restaurants. At yeah. some of the restaurants, you have a temperature check for everyone as they come in. Right. Okay. And has that been a problem? Have the, te- have the employees rebelled against that or been a, a, a self-conscious about that at all or anything? No, you know, again, I, I like self-policing employees, policing themselves, and they don't want a sick person coming to work and working beside them either. And so when we do deliver, I mean, uh, when someone drives up to our restaurant, we walk it out to their car, our employees are wearing face masks, you know, they're wearing gloves. I mean, we're doing all the proper things. They have a you know, we wipe everything down several times a day within within the walls and their temperature check. Right. And back on our conversation, uh, I don't want to describe it in any sort of philosophical construct, but it sounds like you have a libertarian point of view on this. Be educated, absorb your own information, make your own decision and function as you want to function under the risk factors that you've processed for COVID-19. And... You, I, if I understand you correctly, that's the world you want to live in. Uh, that is, but I also think the responsibility of like a restaurant, 
there is responsibility for providing a sanitary place. There is a responsibility for um, people feeling comfortable that your employees have been tested and all that. So I, I think there is, you know, it's a, it's, it's not a total one way street on that. It's just once someone enter, enters your restaurant, then I, I can't test my customers coming in. I mean, that's an invasion of their personal rights. I'm not going to do that. Right. An employee, I can do that because if I don't test them, if they don't check out, then they don't need to come in. Right. But to put that point, that's an important point. You're not going to test your customers. They're going to walk in the door and they're, they're not going to be asked to meet any requirement to come in and eat once, you, once you've reopened. That's correct. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, we call this the takeout outtake especial because it's a little bit lighter. We ask a couple of questions that uh, help our audience get to know the person a little bit better. So we call these our three threshold questions, Ray. So here they are. Uh, take them in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, your all-time favorite movie, or one of your all-time favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically at home or on a walk or some other way, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Well, I read a lot, and so my favorite book is always the last one I just finished. And I feel a great sense of accomplishment to finish it. And I just finished a book called Goodbye to a River, and it was written in 1958 by a guy who canoed down the Brazos River in the central Texas before the river was, they started to build the big dams and dammed it up. And as he goes along, he talks about the stories of when the Comanches lived, you know, in the different areas along the river and the settlers coming in, and the nature and the beauty and the, you know, the, the birds and the, anyway, it was, it was a spectacular book and it's, um, Anyway, that's the last one I read, and so it's my favorite book right now. Excellent. Movie? Movie? Um, Animal House? <laughs> An excellent answer, and I'm surprised okay. we haven't had it before. This show is yeah. is nearly three and a half years old, and I'm amazed yeah. we've never heard that new that name of that, that movie name before, but it is an all-time classic. Yeah, yeah it was a coming-to-age movie. It came out when I was 16 or 17 years old, so... I don't remember every line from it. So. Right. Quick story, Ray. So I saw that movie when I was 17, uh, uh, snuck in because it was an R-rated movie and I wasn't supposed to see it without my parents. My parents weren't with me. And I came out of the movie saying, that's the stupidest movie I've ever seen. College cannot be like that. And then I joined a fraternity a year later and found out it's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of music do you like, Ray? You know, I'm, I'm kind of mid-90s. I'm a big Dave Matthews, Matchbox 20, things like that. So, And I'm also, I like a lot of country. Are you a Texan? I am. I was born in Dallas. Okay. Went to SMU, so stayed the same zip code. Wow. Uh, same zip code your whole life? Yeah. Yeah. That is a rarity in modern America. Yeah. I went to school. My high school and my college were about just a few blocks apart and where I live today is very close. I mean, I've traveled a lot and I, I I'm, but anyway, yeah, I have the same zip code my whole life. Is the life you're living the one you imagined when you were a youngster? That's a great question. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've got a great life and I've been very blessed and fortunate with what I'm doing. And, you know, a lot of people ask me a lot of businesses I'm involved in. I've got a lot of different business interests, but like the restaurant business is like, how'd you get into that? I said, well, I was young and naive. I didn't know any better. And I think, a lot of times the different companies you're involved in and I've got multiple businesses. I paid my way through college. I had a carpet business. I sold carpet door to door and 
I never thought I'd do that. And then, then I never thought I'd buy a little house and fix it up and resell it or get in the restaurant business. So I kind of take life as it, it's come at me. And I've been, I've just been very fortunate. And you know, what we're going through today is just another, I tell my kids, I've got teenage kids. And I said, you know, you are, what you're going through now, I have a senior in high school. You didn't get to go to prom or graduation, but you're going to have something unique to tell your grandkids that no one else will be able to tell them that's graduated in the last 20, 30 years. My dad grew up in depression, talked to those stories all the time. And you're going to have incredible life experiences out of this that are to be totally unique to you. So every day you get up, read up, watch all you can on it because it's this too shall pass. And when it does, you would have lived through it. And it will be a bookmark, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the history of this country. No question about it. Ray, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Be well, be safe. We'll see you again. Okay. Thank you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.